The wild is calling. Answer your thirst for adventure with Grain Belt Premium Beer. Bring the Grain Belt to the outdoors with their limited edition premium hunting season pack. It's available anywhere you can find premium 12-pack cans of Grain Belt. Hey everybody, hello, welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This here is Tony Jones. I am the Reverend Hunter. Joined as always by the Jimmy Olsen to my Superman, Brandon. I, I'm I'm so embarrassed when I don't know these ones that are supposed to be like pop culture references. Because if it involves Superman, everybody else but me knows it. I so I don't, J- I don't. Jimmy Olsen is the uh he's the earnest young photographer for the newspaper. He All kind right. of stumbles into things a lot, like stumbles into figuring stuff out that he probably shouldn't have otherwise figured out. Um, and I'm sure, you know, this is way back. Like I watched when I was a kid, I watched the old black and white Superman TV shows on that. They would just show on, you know, Saturday morning or whatever. But um, I'm guessing that now in the comic books, like Jimmy Olsen is probably a superhero himself or has turned evil or something like that. Or they've rebooted him, killed him, resurrected him, you know. Yeah, comic book character style. Well, you know, yeah. honestly, I'm I'm clumsy. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. And I like to feel <laughs> like uh, I fake it till I make it. So maybe stumbling upon the problems and fixing them or whatever is up my alley. Yeah. Hey, man, it was great to see you in person for the recording of this interview with Scott Franzen. Yeah, it was really nice. Uh, we'll have to do it more often. Yeah, it was awesome, and, and you had your annual uh, podcast meeting after. How was how'd that go? I think it went well. I think there's some new shows uh, coming to the network. Uh, no kidding. So yeah, yeah, pretty exciting. You know, stuff. if people don't know it, um, who who have they subscribe to this uh, feed for the Reverend Hunter podcast? There's also a feed that's all. Isn't it right that there's a feed for all the Talk North podcasts, and they could get them all in their uh, into their phone? That is correct. Yep. Just look up Talk North and that feed is there. That would be probably for somebody who's really into Minnesota sports because, yes, there are other outdoorsy shows like The Flush and and stuff like that but um, that aren't Minnesota-based necessarily or the Polaris one. But there's also quite a few like Minnesota sports shows about basically every Minnesota sports team professional team and several college teams so anyway if you're into that i would encourage you to do to subscribe to that at least check out those other podcasts uh the the guest this week has a lot to say about that because he owns that talk north network which is pretty cool um but we'll get to him in a second brandon i'm i'm about to get on a plane to fly to vermont for the outdoor writers association of america conference it's the first one of their conferences I've ever attended. I've only been a part of this organi- uh, organization for a couple of years, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. And it is peak leaf season in Vermont. So that should be cool. I hope you're coming back with some uh, Vermont maple uh, candies and such like that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's, it, yeah. I, I've been there recently because I've got one kid in college in Vermont and one in New Hampshire, and I'll be visiting both those kids while I'm out there as well. But yep, yep. Last time I was in Vermont to visit my daughter at college, I came home. Like every town you go through, there's somebody on the roadside selling pure Vermont maple syrup. Uh, And you know what? Pure Vermont maple syrup makes a darn good old fashioned if you're... uh, if you're looking right. for something to do with your maple syrup, that's good and, to know. That's good to know. Whiskey. So, what what takes place at these conferences? Lots of people talking. Yeah, okay. isn't it funny? It's for outdoor writers. Now there are there are field trips and stuff, but they're mainly pre and post conference. And I'm not going out early, and I'm not staying after the conference because I'm going to visit uh, those two kids uh, of mine. But there, are, yeah, there are a lot of things like they the state of Vermont offered everybody at the conference a free three day hunting or fishing license. So I know a bunch of people are going grouse hunting. Some people are going fly fishing, stuff like that. But at the conference proper Monday, Wednesday, and Tuesday, uh, will be, I'm, I'm giving a couple talks on writing. There are several writing seminars. There are seminars on how to, uh, this is 
funny because of talking to Scott about this, but how to break into outdoors television. So that, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think, I think I'll spare, spare, spare myself the pain and probably not go to that one. I don't know. Maybe I should, but, um, cause if people don't know, like I spent the last couple of years pitching a TV show idea that got some interest, but never really got off the ground and that's okay. I mean, that's, that's how we live life. You know, we, we, I, 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 I push on doors and the ones that open, I walk through and the ones that don't open, I, you know, turn and go to the next door. So that's fine. But, uh, yeah, that's the conference. And then there's an award banquet on Wednesday night where, uh, I'm actually getting a couple awards. I think actually some other, uh, Ron share production people are getting a couple awards. They're not going to be there, but I know that they want a couple awards as well for writing for the TV shows, uh, maybe for the podcast too. So that should be fun. Yeah. It should be a good time to meet a bunch of other outdoor writers. That's really, really cool. Yeah. You, I can't wait to hear what the award is uh, when you get back. Yeah. I'm not, it's, it's kind of, yeah, I'm not supposed to reveal it until the banquet, but uh, yeah, I, I got three awards, including this podcast, Brandon won an award. So I'll, I'll be able to announce that the next time you and I talk which is that's pretty a, cool. That's yeah. really, really cool. Well, that sounds yeah. like a fun weekend. I mean, and you're going to be around, you know, a bunch, of, not a bunch, but a fair amount of, you know, like-minded folks and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm bringing my hiking boots and going to hike up in the mountains. And uh, so people can follow my Instagram feed, the Reverend Hunter, and they will see probably pictures of, you know, Vermont mountains and leaves and maybe some maple candy. I'm I'm sure we'll get a we'll get a good guest in the future maybe from all of this too. Oh yeah, I mean I yes, I think probably there will be people out there recording podcasts and since I would never do it without you, I, I'll just line them up for later later episodes. Hey, bring with your mic, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, um I'm so excited about Scott Franzen being on the podcast. He's been such a good friend to me over the last 3 years. Really supportive. I I try you know i've i'm obviously has have a podcast on his network he's been supportive of my writing he 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 and i went in together on a you know uh, some visual stuff that we've been working on and pitching uh but it's just he's such a great guy and uh and he's an outdoorsman and he's a kind human being and he's a businessman and you don't always have all those three together because you know, it's not it's not super easy to run a business and own a uh, you know own a business and have a bunch of employees whose you know lives kind of rely upon the success of the business because that's where they get their salary. So I know the pressure is intense, especially through COVID and stuff like that. Um, but Scott's always kept his equanimity, as far as I've seen, and and I just really appreciate him as a human being. So I'm thrilled to have him on the podcast. I know he's your boss. So, yeah, that he is. That he is. And he's a really good guy. He is yeah, a really he, good guy. He is a great guy. So, yeah, my my uh, conversations with Scott, you can find, you know, you Google him, but I, there's a link in the in the show notes for The Flush. That's the television show that he co-hosts. But he's also really, you know, behind um, Minnesota Bound and Do North Outdoors and uh, Destination Polaris. And we could go on and on with the, the stuff that, he and his production company do in, in addition to this talk North network. So yeah, he's just a fantastic guy. And I think you'll really like my conversation with him, which will start right after this uh, announcement from our new sponsor for which we are very grateful. Uh, Grain belt beer and their limited edition sportsman's camo pack. After that, you'll hear me and Scott Franson. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Remember, subscribe, rate, review, and share the Reverend Hunter podcast. The wild is calling. Answer your thirst for adventure with Grain Belt Premium Beer. Bring the Grain Belt to the outdoors with their limited edition premium hunting season pack. It's available anywhere you can find premium 12-pack cans of Grain Belt. I mean, this is one of the things that's interesting is that... Uh, I I was I've often thought of a sermon like a 22 minute TV show. Um and the guy, I mean I learned preaching at seminary of course, but then in the late 90s early 2000s I was on staff 
at a church and the senior pastor was in my estimation a really really good preacher and uh he would come into the confirmation class that i taught at once a year and he would tell the students here's how i put together a sermon they're about 22 minutes and then he would say to them this is this dates the time you know when i was there but he'd say like do, do you ever watch Seinfeld? And all the kids were like, yeah, of course, Seinfeld. And he goes, you know how, and then he would walk through like an episode of Seinfeld or Friends or some common reference point for these kids and be like, at about the 18 minute mark, there's some huge conflict where like Jerry and Kramer and like George and Elaine, something's terrible is going to happen. And then there's a funny twist and then they end the episode and he said, this Sunday, because then we would always make the kids go to church that Sunday and listen and take notes. And he'd say, I want you to listen for that, basically the turn from Act 2 to Act 3 in the sermon. And I always thought that was interesting. It's the same length of time, basically. A sermon in that church was about the same length of time as a TV show, 22 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. So I just one of the things I'm interested in hearing from you is... Since you bought this production company and have all these TV shows under your umbrella, what have you learned about telling stories, especially in 22 minutes? Oh, that's a very, very difficult question. Um, there's There's a couple of things, Tony, the way I'd answer that question is, one, there's, um, many, many ways to do or tell a story. And um, there's a lot of ways to run that railroad if you want. Um, Ron will say that sometimes when you're telling a story, you start with the game. And then you come back with filling in the blanks from that. So in other words, start with the action. Right midstream. Just, just right, jump you know, in. As, soon as, as yeah. soon as the viewer comes into... The piece, they might see a big fish being caught, um, a bird going down, the turkey in full strut, whatever it might be. And then you go back to how did we get to this point? And you fill in. I I once heard a novelist talking about um, always have a severed hand in chapter one. Right in yeah. the book, because everyone's like, "Holy crap! Why is there a how do we hand? get to that?" Yeah. yeah, and then you right, you build the story around it. And there's a there's a lot of books that I've written. I'm sure you have too that do that as yeah. well. And yeah. then, and then there can be you know the traditional way, which is a story with a beginning, middle, and end. And um, how do you get to that point? And how does the video support that? Because you know, we were just having this conversation. Sometimes the video doesn't need a voiceover or a script behind it. Yeah. It speaks for itself. And then there's some times where the video just needs a word or two to be that more, much more poignant with the viewer. Um, and it's the combination of the written word with what they're seeing and hearing in the piece. You know, all of our stories, all of our shows have a music element. They didn't when Ron first started, which really? is interesting. No, if you go back, if you watch Minnesota Baum in the classic stories, it's Ron's narration and story. There's there's very little, if any, music behind him. And then that gradually became part of our style. And really, in my opinion, it can add that exclamation point when uh, with what you're watching, whether it's a happy moment a sad moment, a reflective moment, the music really brings that out. And Ron would tell you too, and, and Bill as well, that um, the choices that our editors make with the music are usually right on. However, at some point, sometimes um, the producer writer might say, gosh, I don't know if that piece fits. Do we have something that's more upbeat or something more melancholy? And then they'll find it and they go, yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, so, you know, I've, it was interesting to me working on some stuff with you over the last couple of years because 
I, I've 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 had friends who are in Los Angeles, and I went to seminary there, and I have some friends in the film industry as a result, and stuff like that, and they're or in TV, and they're always talking about the writing, the writing, the writing, and I'm like, well, there's a lot of stuff. There's no writing. It's like reality TV, and they would say like, no, no, in reality TV, there's writing. I'm like, no, there's not. It's all just guys looking at the camera and talking and whatever. In and then I find out there is writing, even. On shows with no voiceovers, there's there is writing, but um, and writing is is different than how I thought of writing, which is you sit down and you type out words. Because writing is also taking the transcript from all the footage and putting that episode together, putting those pieces together. That's part of the writing process. Right. Exactly. Taking that log which you have watched all the video to find either sound bites or video that you think help tell your story. And then you as the writer piece that together with your written word to tell the entire story. First off question I have is, is there, is there really reality television? Yeah. Or is it just right. called reality? I yeah. don't know. Because no, there no. is writing. There is reality. no reality. I mean, uh, the the medium always affects the message, right? Right. I mean, th- this is back to Marshall McLuhan, and whether it's a sermon, but particularly, I think, on video, when it's so highly edited, you know, um, when, when you when they're when we're watching an episode of the Flush Pod, or the Flush TV show that you've that you're hosting on a hunt you've been on. It's what, a two-day hunt down to 22 minutes? Usually, and there was no music while you were hunting. Right, right. Well, just in my head. <laughs> no, those are voices, I guess. Um, they're usually on a flush shoot, it's a three- to four-day hunt. Um, it can go shorter if we're very successful um, and, and get all the footage we need. And you know, if you if you want me to to walk through the process, it, so you take, let's say, a three day hunt, and it takes me probably two to three days to log all that video. And when I say log, I'm watching, and you've done this, Tony. You're watching every video clip that happens during the shoot, and and eventually you get good at going, okay, I don't need that, and and that a lot of our editors don't need B-roll suggestions in, in, in when you're putting a show together. And when I say B-roll, it's um, a beauty shot of a skyline, a sunset, or something like that. You might write in your script, hey, let's use a cool sunset shot here. They'll choose the one they want to use. But you're watching for, in a flush story, um, what happens in the hunt. So was there a particularly neat flush? Was there an unbelievable shot? Was there a retrieve, dog work? And then really um, the talking points or the voices that happen in the field, what was said. And um, those are the things that you hear that really help you then write your script. And then the editor will choose the music that goes along with the, the feeling you're trying to write to. And that, that whole process of logging the video, writing the script, for someone that's good at it, not Scott Franson, takes them probably, I think Bill can probably and Travis do that in four days. For me, it takes a little longer, um, a little longer. And, and B- Bill and Travis can probably turn uh, a script for a flush show in two days, yeah. Don't, you've done a lot of hunting and now you're, in some ways, packaging these hunts in a visual format in 22 minutes. Uh, what do you? What's lost? Something's lost because you, you don't. I mean, the drive out, yeah, out west is part of the hunt. The sitting around having a beer with guys in in the evening is part of the hunt. You know, I get you get the dramatic parts when a dog gets injured or whatever, but there's a lot of other very mundane stuff that ha- that's all part of the hunt that doesn't make the TV show. Do you, so how do you 
Well, some of that of does that. make the some TV does, show. Yeah. It depends yeah. on the episode yeah. and and the storyline. Um, and you know how how is the hunt going? Wow, we only got three birds, and we only saw this many. Let's add in some of the driving time footage. Let's let's make sure we we you know, we always capture the camaraderie moments and things like that. They may not make the finished product, but we have those there. Should we need them to help fill if the hunt's below average? Um, what gets missed? I don't know. I mean, we try and um, capture it all. Maybe part of what's missed is the pre-planning that goes into it or um, with an average hunt. If you're going someplace hunting for the first time, the time you spend looking at the area you're going to hunt, researching public land opportunities, um, maybe looking at your onyx on on uh, crops in the area. They, th some of that gets lost because we we might show it in a five or ten second clip and then we move on. Yeah, that's a lot of time in the pre plan. And the same with the time spent in the car. When you're upland hunting, you're oh walking and driving, and walking and driving. Yeah. Unless you're at a, you know, you're at um, land, you maybe have permission to hunt on, and you can hunt it all day, and you might drive a little bit and go to the next spot. But if you're especially if you're public land hunting. You are hunting a piece, and then you're getting in your car, and you're going to the next piece, which could be 20, yeah. 30 miles away. This is funny, Scott, because it's, it's probably the biggest shocker for me getting into pheasant hunting. I started, my first hunting was duck hunting, where you don't move around. Like, mm -hmm. you get your spot, and you sit there for a couple hours. Then you go back, and then you go to the same spot or a different spot in the evening, and you sit there for a couple hours. It was surprising to me in pheasant hunting particularly, but I think it's probably the same in grouse hunting. And Maybe in grouse hunting you can find a huge area of public land and you can spend all day working it. But in pheasant hunting, you hunt a field, you get in your truck. Sometimes you hunt a field for 45 minutes and then you get in your truck and you drive for 45 right. minutes. Right. And I've been surprised. And it's also why people are always saying to me like, oh, you could be, I bet you're going to get one of those electric F-150s. I'm like, I don't think, I mean, <laughs> I don't think people realize how much time, especially if you leave the Twin Cities at 5 a.m. so you can be at a field at 10 a.m. so you can start shooting. And then you drive all day. You don't pass a gas station. Right, right. And maybe till you get back to your hotel that night, like you've put on more miles than an F1, electric F-150 can, can take. take. Yeah. Well, we, we did a show... Uh, Tony in Kansas, uh, a public land hunt in an area I've never hunted before. So we did our research ahead of time and, and plotted out the first day and a half of areas we wanted to hunt and walk in areas and public areas. We drove down there. Um, this is in January. And the day we drove down, I think we arrived at, we stayed at this little VRBO, which is great. And it was 68 degrees. It was phenomenal. What had happened, though, is a week and a half before, they'd had a major blizzard. So then it warmed up, and what I never knew about in, in Kansas is when it warms up, and, the, and because of the dirt they have on their dirt roads, this clay stuff, the east-west roads become impassable. And I'm like, no way. It's never impassable. Right. It's impassable. And so we went... Because it's rutted and Because muddy, it's like or? clay, and it gets... It's like... You just it's slide like, off. Yeah, you slide off. It's oh, it's like man. baby poop is a bad yeah, way, a, bad, yeah, yeah. a really bad visual for people to picture. <laughs> but you start sliding around and um, get yourself in more trouble. And you can see on these roads where people start and they get stuck and they go, well, I can at least back out. I know I can get out. We went to our first spot, found it, um, hunted it, got some birds up, thought that's great. Okay, we had four more spots mapped out that we could not get to. So we hunted at, I believe it was like, say, 8.30 or 9, did an hour walk. We didn't get back into the field until 3 o'clock in the afternoon and and probably put on 300 miles. Going down a road, had to stop or couldn't try to find, right. go around an area to get to it, and we found out we couldn't get to it. Or once we did get to it, 
it wasn't as it appeared on our Onyx. Yeah. It didn't look really good, huntable land, or maybe it had been hayed or it was, you know, better chicken property than pheasant sure. property and the chickens were in season, you know, in season. And and that's an example of pheasant hunting in certain times of the year. Yeah. There's other times of the year yeah. you can get in your truck and it's dry and you in Kansas, I'm sure, and you drive twenty minutes, you're at your next spot and you go hunt. Right. But it it we talked about it in the show. We we hunted one walk, we drove for two and a half, three hours, had lunch, got into our next hunt at two thirty or three in the afternoon and found a great spot. Sure. But that's how sure. much and I think a, a lot of upland hunters get used to that windshield time, particularly when they're hunting public land. And that that's the other thing with the show we really, really try and emphasize and show is areas that anyone can hunt and predominantly public land. Not all. We don't do all public land, but we we do the majority of our hunts on public land. And for me personally, that's how I grew up hunting and, and um, really love that type of hunting. And so that's what I try and show in, in my episodes um, are those public land hunts as much as possible. And then just the, the connection that hunters have with their dogs, because that's a big passion of mine. And I think every, I don't not every, but many upland hunters have that same passion, but that's, um, when I have gone hunting with my buddies, the stories we tell now are about, yes, we got birds here, but do you remember so-and-so and, and this retrieve, this flush, when they got nicked up or when they got sprayed by a skunk or whatever it may be? It's, it's, it's the involvement of the, our hunting dogs over the years, more so than this pile of birds that we're you know, cleaning. I remember an episode of The Flush, and I think, it, was it with you and, and some guys from Eden Prairie who all mm-hmm. went to high school together in Eden Prairie? Yeah, those are my and, high school buddies. Okay, and they have a property in yep. western Minnesota, and they have, like, pictures of all their dead dogs. Yeah. All their former hunting buddies. Call it their They're, wall of fame. And it's they've had this property now, God, what is it, 20-some years they instead of making investments in the market or things like that, they chose to invest in hunting land and gradually grew. But anyways, uh, their properties and stuff, but have this wall in their hunting lodge of all the dogs that they've hunted with. And there's five or six owners of this land. And so you multiply three dogs or four dogs per owner. That's a lot of dogs that they've shared the field with. And I it, it was a very neat yeah. memorial and a neat way to honor, you know, the hunting dogs. And we got a lot of feedback on that. Um, from it was the a show. very cool episode. Yeah, yeah. It was one of my favorite episodes that I've seen. Cause it, yeah. Cause it was more than just about the hunt. It was really about these guys and, and the camaraderie and, oh, and the yeah. fact they, they did it and came together as part of, uh, you know, the pheasants forever mission. They worked right. very closely right. with, Pheasants Forever to kind of, I think they call it develop their land, to, to make it um, prime upland habitat. And that's good for all of us. It's not just good for the landowner. Right. It's, that's, you know, means clean water. It means they're rearing pheasants on their property that may go to public land property. They have public land all around their place. And yeah. um, so they, you know, everybody can kind of benefit from from that model. Yeah, it was after watching that episode that I got my buddy Larry, um, who owns, he's from St. Paul, but he owns a bunch of farms in South Dakota. And that's a lot of the spots I hunt. I was like, dude, pheasants forever. They want to help private landowners develop hunting land. As, and so then we last fall, I think it was Thanksgiving weekend hunt, a PF staff member from South Dakota spent the entire day with us. Oh, he wow. couldn't carry a gun. Because he's also uh, an employee of the state of South Dakota at some job share thing. And so because of that, he couldn't have a firearm while he was on the job or whatever, unfortunately. Oh, really? Guy. Yeah, Interesting. Yeah. So he just walked with us all day. But he was like, oh, you should do this here and do this here. And I mean, it was, he was like, you know, he could name every kind of grass and every plant and every, 
invasive and, and maybe where to do a burn or when to yeah. do a burn. Or, and he's like, bring cattle into this CRP because they're going to eat and stomp down the thistle and they're going to basically aerate the soil. And so, I mean, just as an example, Larry's like, well, you can't have, you can't graze CRP land or you'll lose your CRP. And he said, actually, the guy's like, actually, for this one month in the spring, if you get permission from us, you can. Right. You can graze CRP land. That's so, the other place that Pheasants Forever is so beneficial yeah. is helping you understand the different programs that are out there yeah. through the government even too, or through them. Yeah, that's right. Like he knew everything. Yep. And he's like, oh, we'll do it. You can plant these trees here and we'll split the cost with you and you this and this. Um, but let's talk about dogs because I think um, I, I'm, for me, hunting's all about the dog. I do hunt deer. Because I like to fill the freezer with meat, and mm-hmm. it's all we eat. And you know, I've just, in fact, tonight uh, is the last pound of ground venison. Our last pound of ground venison from last. I and mean, what are we making tonight? We're just making burgers. We're making smash burgers. Which well, I is like w- smash burgers. My- what time should I be over? <laughs> <laughs> my kid, you know, I got this seventeen-year-old. And man, the the amount of protein that kid goes through, it's it's crazy. I bet. So uh he and I, between the two of us, we shot three deer last year and we're just there's a couple shanks left, so I'm gonna make I'm gonna make some asobuco and then that'll be it. We'll be out with just a couple weeks to go before the early youth deer hunt. Before uh, you fill it up again. In October we'll start hunting deer again. But deer aside and and as much as I look forward someday to hunting out west for big game again, like I did for elk a couple of years ago, um, man, the dog, it's all about the dog. And you and I are both lab guys. Yep. Um, I've just sensed in watching the shows that you've done that you there's something really special. And you did a very special episode with your daughters where you brought your the remains of your dog to like a favorite field. So, you know, wax eloquent about what, what is it? Has it, have you always had a passion for dogs since you were a kid or? Is it- waxing eloquently in Scott France might be <laughs> the biggest oxymoron <laughs> I've on, ever heard true. of. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. I, I, I it's kind of interesting. I am an animal lover that loves to hunt. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Um, I, get the biggest thrill out of seeing deer in the fields or forest or, you know, we had, I was up lucky enough to be up in Canada last week and saw bear swimming across the river and I'm like, God, that's awesome. You know? And, and so, but I love to hunt too. And, and I, um, have always loved dogs. I grew up with dogs. Um, our, our, my first dogs or family dogs were not hunting dogs. When I was eight years old, I got my first dog. Uh, I spent $5 and went to the dog pound and got a mutt that we thought was part lab, part greyhound, and part probably 17 other things. But she could run like the Dickens and was just a wonderful dog. And as I, I got my first hunting dog in college, and I guess I grew up um, playing team sports um, and played in high school, uh, football, basketball, baseball, and then I played football in college. So I'm very rooted in that um, kind of team sports mentality. Um, it's a, you know, that philosophy I think runs through some of my business ethics and things like that. Well, that to me is what hunting with a dog is. You're a team. It's a two-man team. Sometimes it's a three-man team. Um, if you're with your buddies and they have dog, the team becomes um, that much larger. And I love training my dogs because it's like growing together. It's like coaching your kids in a sport or, you know, theater, if you happen to have that arts flair or singing or things like that. Um, and when you are able to build that connection with your dog, have fun in the field, share success to me, it just really brings it full circle and makes it that much more re- rewarding. And I can't tell you, I don't know, maybe it's something as I'm getting older, Tony, because I've always loved my dogs. And, and now that my daughters have kind of moved out, we're down to one. We hope to have two again soon. I, sp- I just spent... Daughters or dogs? Dogs. 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 I still have three daughters, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, when I... I when, 
I spent a week um, at our cabin. The family had gone home. The dog went home. I was all by myself, and I was so unbelievably lonely. Why'd you send the dog home? Uh, because she, because I had somebody else coming out, and then we were going to go away, so we couldn't bring the oh. dog. So we couldn't bring the dog. So that's why she went home. In those two days that I was by myself, I I got more work done than I ever had because I just had to fill my time with something, um, and I just grow more and more fond of that canine companionship yeah, yeah. because they really are companions and it's not the same. It's not the same. Hunt. I, I hunted in college before I got my dog alone and we'd be, and we duck hunted a lot. And so I, the more times, the amount of times I swam out to retrieve a duck because it was <laughs> over my waders or something and, or I'd walk Ugh. for four hours and see one hen pheasant. Yeah. I said, I'm not, no more, I'm not going to do it. And then when I realized that connection you can get with your hunting buddy and, and watch him go then get your duck or flush a rooster or something. It It's just, you know, I never want to give that up. Yeah, it's funny because, um, first of all, I can't, I don't think I would go to the cabin without my dog because I feel so bad. I would feel so right. bad. Um, but after this last weekend at the cabin, this is something that's happened over the course of this summer. Um and my wife mentioned it to me after we got home from the cabin this last weekend. She's she's like, when when she goes out on walks in the woods with her dog, Crosby, our dog, my dog, won't go anymore. He won't even go on a walk in the woods with her. That's amazing. Because he just wants to be with, with me. You. He's afraid. It's almost like he thinks I'm going to go do something. I'm going to go hunt or take our side-by-side -side out on a drive down the trails or whatever, and he won't. He'll miss it. Yep. So he just stays. Even if I'm inside the cabin cooking, he just sits right by the door. He won't go on a walk with his other owner. Like Isn't that unreal? It's How they, crazy. The, the bond yeah. they make. Yeah. And he might probably spends other times with your wife, you know, All when you're the time, in the, and when you're, I'm out of town yeah, or whatever. And, and, yeah. and it's fine, but it's yeah. like, oh, dad's here. Uh, We're at we the might, cabin. We might yeah. be going hunting or for a walk. Or he'll throw the ball, he'll, he'll throw a dummy to me in the lake or he'll, yeah, that's right. Or I get to run alongside the gator or Hank, whatever. Hank, my other dog that just passed, he used to get in the truck. So I'd have the tailgate open and be loading it and... And I'd say, Gene, where's Hank? She says, I, I don't know. Did he go outside? And I go look, and he'd be sitting in the truck next to his kennel, ready to go. I'm ready. And I yeah. said, Buddy, we're not leaving till tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, I'm here now. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Let's just drive real yeah. slow, Dad. Yeah. That'd be fine. Um, have you, like, tell me, give me a story about Hank, because Hank was obviously a very special dog to you. Yeah, he was. I don't, you know, I, I always wonder if one's more special than the other. I've had, I don't believe you have just one dog. I've had six wonderful hunting dogs. Wow. Um, and you're, you're a rich man. To have yeah, six, I am. You know, like that. And my, yeah. my first dog, he would go through anything. He was not well trained because that was my very first hunting dog. And I'd done, read nothing about training dogs. Um, how would he hunt? Um, you know, Hank, I, I guess more than any of my other dogs, Hank and I did a lot of traveling together. So we spent kind of maybe like, like your dog, a lot of one-on-one -on -one time. And I, I figured out last year alone, I, I think Hank and I traveled somewhere between 15 and 20,000 miles together. Wow. Uh, and that's, wasn't always just the two of us, right. but it that's a lot of time together and um he had he had just really he always was a good hunter and had potential and he and each year was growing as a hunter and and, and whatnot but last year he really did some things that it at an early age that i hadn't seen some of my dogs do until a little bit older and um i just was so excited to have Hank with his daughter as partners for a few years, uh, that was just kind of the tough thing to lose him with that. So I, he, he was, he was just, I guess the other thing with Hank is he always made us laugh and smile. And I don't, I was saying to my wife, Tony, um, I think it was even this morning or something, we've had now three girl dogs and four boy dogs. And I always want to have, I like having one of each and, and kind of rotating that way. 
And to me, and I might be totally imagining this, the boy dogs have had a little bit of a goofier personality and then then the girls seem a little sweeter. Maybe I'm just putting <laughs> human emotions or Projecting personality them. traits yeah. on them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Hank was, he, Hank just would make fun for himself. He would, we'd be out on the deck having dinner and we'd go look and where's Hank? And Hank would be swimming laps in the pool or he'd go get a stick and he'd run around the yard just with his stick. And then he'd come up on, onto the deck with his stick and run around. And he just made us laugh. And, um, and he was probably the biggest cuddler of oh. uh, any of our dogs we had. And, and he did that primarily with me. So that was kind of the bond. Yeah. Like I'd, especially this time of year, it gets light earlier. And let's say on a Monday night, you're watching a football game or Sunday, you're watching a football game at night. He had this little routine. He'd come and he'd get in my lap every night, this 70 pound dog. And he'd lay down and he'd put his head right under my nose. And then he'd just go to sleep. And, uh, so those are the, I mean, Millie gets up in my lap too, but it's, um, he just was a snuggler that way. Yeah. So I don't know if that would, and that was a connection he and I had Yeah, yeah. Know, yeah. Um, yeah. more than like Izzy snuggled with everyone and Hank would too, but she, she really loved my wife and, um, um, and the girl, the, all the dogs have loved the family, but Hank, the, the, well, plus I'm probably only had the lap that's big enough for a 70 pound lab, you know, um, uh, so he didn't try and do that much with, with the, uh, with the girls. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, you're a couple years ahead of me cause I, I have a couple more years till I'm an empty nester and my wife has been like, then you can have two hunting dogs when there's no more kids. And I want house. three. Is that right? Yeah. I'd like to have two labs and some sort of pointer. I always want to have a lab, a mature lab and a lab, a younger yeah, lab. Yeah. Then I'd love to have, a whether it's a wire hair or a draught or even a Brittany or something a little bit different. Would you rotate them when you're upland hunting? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. It, That's a, it's it a would little kill more, me. It's a the, little more work to work two dogs. Leaving in the field. a dog in the truck while you're hunting. I mean, I get that the guys who have the kennels and that you're hear the dog, you know, you're yeah. hunting and three miles away, you can hear the dogs in the barking in the crates. But the thought, I've probably told this story on the podcast before, but my previous dog, Albert, had a very different personality than Crosby. He was, he was bigger, 10 pounds bigger, just rippling muscles and absolutely hardcore. Um, and one time he cut himself on some barbed wire in South Dakota, you know, came out of a cattail slough and had a big, like, like a half moon of skin hanging off his chest. And so I've got that first aid kit and everything in my truck. And so a guy, you know, helped me, held him down on the tailgate. And I stapled with like a surgical stapler. Mm -hmm. I stapled five or six staples to close it up. And then I put him in a crate in the back of the truck. And we went and hunted the next field. And 10 minutes later, there he was standing beside me. <laughs> he had busted out of the crate. He must have gone absolutely mental to bust out of a crate and, and tear down the field and find us. Cause he was just like, I don't, I'm hunting, right? I'm not here to sit in a crate. Uh, but that's also his connection with you. Yeah. That's his connection with me. And now Crosby wouldn't do that. Cause I've, I couldn't leave Albert in the truck. Like, let's say I'm blocking at the end of a field and we're, you know, some guys, I'm like, my dog actually sits on heel mm -hmm. when I'm blocking at the end of a field. Other guys' dogs don't. So I kind of, I'm like, no, let's just, if we're blocking, let's just leave our dogs in the truck. Right, right. Because yeah. <laughs> a dog that's... Because otherwise it's a three-ring circus. Yeah, yeah, ruins the hunt if yeah. a dog is... Anyway, I could never do that with Albert because he would have destroyed the inside of my truck, you know. But Crosby will sit there. He'll look out, you know, but... He's much more kind of a calm demeanor. So it's, it, it is interesting how these dogs that are so genetically the same have such different personalities. When I, when I had Izzy and Hank um, hunting together, what I would generally do is hunt them the first hunt together. Um, even like if we're on a four-day hunt, the first hunt together, and then I'd rotate because it, the first time I'd get a little of the juices out of them, and then 
if you're hunting for three days, it, they need that rotation. It, you know, it's hard for a dog to hunt pheasants up in the Midwest, cattails, yeah. things like that, for three or four straight days. Um, they, they get beat up, and and it really saved the dog so that. And then maybe in the evening I might hunt them together again, but okay. they would, um, they were that much fresher, you know, uh, during the hunts and things like that. Um, I want to ask you about one other thing that's a j- different subject, but I I, di- I wasn't around here. I didn't know you when you bought this production company, and you've since expanded it. But I take it it was a pretty big career shift for you and it was a i'm guessing it was a pretty risky endeavor like did, you didn't sell another business to buy this one i'm i and so what i'm wondering is as you know you were in what were you in your 40s when you yes. did this yep. yep so what led you to make to take that risk i think a lot of people especially to these days are feel very nervous about the future, about the economy, about where we're going as a country, and would probably be reluctant to take a big financial and, and you know occupational risk like that. So what was that like? What led you to do it? And what did you learn in the process? Well, buying any business, there's a certain amount of risk. Um, there's no sure things. And there's there's too many intangibles that can affect the business. So if you if you separate that and what you can control, that's what I look at. And I and I, for me, it was what I would consider a calculated risk. Um, I know and knew enough about television. I grew up in a in the television family. My dad was a general manager of um, the local independent then NBC affiliate in Minneapolis, St. Paul. I had been in radio for uh, 14 years, so I had a good understanding of the media business. And when um, we were talking with Ron about um, the company, his biggest needs um, were the areas that I had the most expertise and skill, if you will. Um, I had been relatively successful and building out business and sales operations in the media world. And um, that's what really our production company is, is we uh, sell the advertising in our shows, and and that's how we are able to either win or lose in, in the game. Um, and with the people that I had worked with over the year. I was, I was able to, you know, bring in good people that understand marketing, where our shows may fit in in the marketing world or marketing continuum for specific advertisers, and um, they could uh, have success here and, and and make a living. And and each one of our shows is a little bit different, um, but that, I mean, Ron will tell you that. Things changed in 2008 for him when the recession came, and his biggest need was getting advertisers into his shows, and he didn't have the people in-house to do that or kind of the understanding or wherewithal to build that out, and and that was my kind of history. And then the other parts I had to learn on the fly on the, on the production side because I may have known you know, more about the radio and television side, but this is different this is we don't have um you know kind of unlimited sales inventory we go about producing our content differently and there's um costs involved with that and understanding how our our process and gathering our content um logging our content writing our content getting it to air shipping it out all of those things were a little bit of a learning process for me on, on the production side. What do you, um, it, uh, maybe not just this uh, particular business or this particular industry, but like what, what do you think about, th- there is a lot of talk about kind of the second half of life, especially for guys, you know, like 
and and a lot of guys struggle with that. I know my dad did. He kind of was in one industry, and when he retired, he had nothing. He didn't lo- job was his life. Um, how do you? How do you? I mean, one thing you did was you are working in something you love to do. So you right. get to combine a passion of yours, which is hunting and dogs and and that with this work. But are there any kind of meta lessons you have or words of wisdom about for people who are maybe on the brink of a change and wondering, should I do it? What how can I can I manage the risk? Um well what, what I can speak to what I did. You know, each each situation has its unique um, variables that you have to look at. For me, I stayed in my lane. I, I was a quote unquote media executive. This is in that lane. Um, what I was able to do is apply knowledge, skills, things I learned from uh, previous careers to this business. Um, so the, the foundationally, it wasn't dramatically different from what I was doing. It, it's just, it was a smaller scale and it, that's why I say it was a calculated risk. I, and, um, I, I couldn't imagine when, when in getting into business for myself and, and with my partner, we, you know, we were approached with various businesses, um, that we could consider to, you know, potentially buy or something like that. I didn't have the confidence or interest to go away from what I'd already knew. Um, and so I wanted to stay in that. And this, this just, this is one of the things that just happened. You know, I, I didn't go out looking for this, for Ron Share Productions. It just happened after I went fishing one day with Bill Shirk after I bought a, a fishing trip at an auction. That's that's how it came. And we just started talking about things and found out that Ron might be potentially interested in selling. So I called him. Um, but that, you know, the, my advice would be: um, don't if if there's an opportunity and if it aligns with areas that you feel are um, are, are within your skill set and your talent ability, then do your due diligence and explore it. And if, and if the opportunity's still there, don't let age be a consideration. My, my dad worked till he was 72 or five and probably would have worked till he was 90 if he could have. Uh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. um, it, I have been lucky because when I was in radio and things like that, I would hoard my PTO time in order to go fishing or hunting. Now I get to do it as part of my job and I'm extremely lucky and thankful and blessed to be able to do that. Um, and, and it is different though. It is different going out to try and produce a flush episode that hopefully will be entertaining for our, our viewers Versus just going with Tony and Scott going, let's go hunting very for a day. Different. It's, it's very, very different. different. It's it's yeah. work. Yeah. It's fun work. Sure. But it's it, it I mean, and yeah. it, and I wouldn't change it, but it's it's work. And it you've you've probably hunted or fished with guides before that did something else and said, you know, I'm I'm I want to go guide. I'm gonna do this full time. And they do it and they love it. Yeah. But they said I I kidded myself thinking that, well, I love to fish. Well, this won't be work. Right. It is. It's work. It is because you're under a different level of pressure to produce. Yeah, it's, it, 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 that's my experience of guiding trips in the Boundary Waters. I'm like, I get to guide. I get paid to go to the Boundary Waters and guide trips. But also, like, the route is on you. And if the weather's bad, it's on, on you, you to try to make it. And how good is the food? It's on, like if or the, the food fishing. Is, or, it, it, yeah, if the food's crappy when I'm out there with my kid in the Boundary Waters, pff, whatever. Suck it up. <laughs> suck it yeah, up, right? Suck it up. But when somebody paid me to make sure the food's good and then the food turns out not to, you know, that's, it is different. Right. Yeah, it is different. Well, the, I can't let you go without asking you about the changing media landscape. Because, you know, radio and TV are not what they used to be when you were a young man. 
Um, Are you saying I'm not young anymore? Tell yes, me. that's exactly <laughs> what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, and you and I have talked about this, you know, uh, offline quite a bit um, as we've looked at the, the landscape of outdoors television, which is just a, like a worse than Dante's Inferno, if you ask me, <laughs> in, in what it really is like. Um, but there are other ways that people are exploring doing outdoors media. And I'm on my way this week to the Outdoor Writers Association in Vermont. And I'm sure there are people there who are thinking about what this all means. Um, how's it changing? What do, you, what do you think the future might hold? Well, I don't know that I could have predicted what we're seeing now, even five or six years ago. It's, it's changing rapidly um, you know, with, with streaming, with social media, uh, all the streaming outlets, then linear projects or linear channels or, you know, your traditional television, cable, uh, satellite, et cetera. I, what I think will happen, and this is purely speculation, is I, I do believe there's going to be somewhat of a culling of all the different outlets that are out there. They can't all survive um, with low entry points of um, um, subscription or no subscription fees or things like that. Um, eventually, they, they have to, you know, make money or they go out of business, you right, know. And, right. um, and there will always be, and this is what we've talked about, um, an audience wanting stories and good storytelling. Um, and they will find that if, if we as content producers continue to do that. And whether that's through, you know, a YouTube or Netflix or something like that, or through an outdoor channel or a Bally Sports Network or a regional network, they find it. And for us, it's, it's, we try and be as many places as we can for viewers to find our content um, and try and be as relevant as a small company can be in those areas and also with our social media channels. And they feed one another. It, you know, it used to be that if you produce good content, you could go pitch a network and they might buy it from you. That's usually how it went. Or they might say, hey, we, we can't buy it from you, but we can either do... Um, you know, you can do a time buy or we'll or, or barter it with you. Well, now there's any myriad of ways to put content up. Yeah. Um, and, and then the challenge becomes trying to monetize it. We just had this conversation, you know, is um, if you want to be a YouTube star, you either have to do something very different that goes viral right away and, and allows you to grow your audience or it's a slow build. Yeah. And as you build it slow those would be probably pretty lean times yeah. for those people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you look at like the music and you think I think I was just thinking back to like um everything, you know, whether it was like Napster and uh like Apple Music and Pandora and now it's just it's like everyone's on Spotify. Like the, there were all these different iterations that mm -hmm. came and went and I'm sure there are still people who use Pandora and Apple Music my mom still uses Apple yep. Music because it yep. is integrated with her phone but everyone I know my age and lower they all use Spotify right. so forget about you know uh, MySpace and for, whatever there's all these they kind of fell by the wayside but also you hear content producers musicians being like I make jack off spotify so they have to make they're making money in concerts in by concerts, going on right. tour and right. by selling merch and there's other ways and so yeah it's it's just the it's a reshuffling of the deck for sure you well it's we've added um things to our portfolio like podcasts you know trying to grow our social media presence and things like that we've seen those audiences grow but it's also helped our video components, whether that's on YouTube or on the uh, channels that the shows may be airing, we, we're seeing more interaction and feedback. And it still goes back to, to what I said. For us, we just want to try and tell our stories and be as many places as we can for people to find us. And um, there's still 
we we also align our shows in many places around sporting events and because um, people still root for the home team and we have a wonderful partnership with uh, Bally Sports Network and um, people are still going to watch the Twins, the Wild, the Wolves and when they come in or out of those sports programming, hopefully they see one of our shows there. Or yeah. they're in a sports bar and they're watching it and they see one of them there. That it's and, true. And I see them all the time. Or when the twins are in a rain delay, a rain delay, a, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and that's and right. we, it's people's viewing habits have changed and spread out, but they're still viewing. They're still consuming content. Um, it's just there's and there's a lot of content out there, and there will always continue to be a lot of content out because it comes and goes. You know, we we hope. We stand the test of time. We've been doing it now for 26 years, so we hope we can go another 26 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. Thanks, thanks for, for having thanks me. Thanks for supporting the podcast network for Brandon because I couldn't do it without him. He's the bomb. He doesn't have a mic right now, but he's nodding at both of us. He is, and Brandon needs to go hunting with us this fall. I know. Well, I took him out last year, so I planned to take He said that again. was a royal fail, though. It was. <laughs> it was. Public land in Minnesota. Uh, we... Yeah, well, let's okay. If I, you probably have some better spots. I, I, so I there's you, public land, but I've got some, I've got some spots. If you've got spots that are within spitting distance of the Twin Cities, we'll that'd do be it. great. Maybe we'll drag Travis out with that'd us. That'd be too. awesome. Cool. Yeah. Good deal. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.